I see grief as a character that shows up on my doorstep and it starts living on my porch. It's tattered, it's messy, it's dirty, it's hungry, and it just wants attention. I had to let it in and befriend it and just let it walk with me. And I'm not getting over this or through this. And I live with grief every day and I see it. Hey friends, Lisa Kiefoffer here, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. This is a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. And I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet we're so grief illiterate and that's just causing us too much harm. So through my work at Reimagining Grief and this show, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. In today's episode, we are once again exploring the grief that results from a non-death loss. My guest, Beth Erlander, shares the grief journey she's been on since August 2012, when her fit and active partner, Michael, went out for a bike ride in the mountains near their home, but eventually returned home as someone who was quadriplegic. Beth was and is a therapist, but she shares the crash course of learning and growth she's been on ever since and how she's turning that learning into serving others too. Beth, I am so excited to welcome you to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I feel like this conversation has been long in the making, and I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so honored to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, of course, you're going to hear all about Beth and hear from Beth today and her incredible work at Grief Friend and her creativity, her wisdom. I'm just so excited for you all to meet her and to learn from her. Beth, so besides sharing your professional wisdom with us today, of course, I want to invite you to share sort of the personal journey and the personal wisdom that you've learned through your grief experiences in life. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want to start where I start with all of my guests. And I know you appreciate this as a fellow practitioner. And that's just getting at the sort of early roots of your grief education, as it were. So thinking back and sharing with us your earliest memories of grief in your childhood and what you were seeing in terms of how adults were modeling implicitly or explicitly grief and what do you think that taught you back then and how did that shape how you came to understand grief in one of the most pivotal moments of your life? Yeah, absolutely. I think my earliest memory, it's actually not a memory, but it's a story that I've been told and I've seen pictures of me as a three-year-old. And that's when my father's aunt, so my great aunt Ebba, died suddenly. And I believe I was told by my mom the word Ebba died, which I appreciate because that's what I ran out saying to my father when he came home. And I had put on Aunt Ebba's hat that she had given me. So I was wearing that all day. So I think from a very young age, I had maybe a way to ritualize her in that moment of honoring, like she's gone, but I'm going to wear this hat because I love her. 
So that's the earliest experience that I've been told about. And I just appreciate that about myself at that young of an age. And then another thing that I do remember was when I was 10, my mom's parents, so my grandparents, Kate and Vic, died within a week apart. I think my grandmother died first, and then my grandfather died, I think, from heartbreak a week after. I don't think he wanted to live without her. So that was really hard on my mom. And I remember being at the funeral, and I think we had a dual funeral for both of them, which is just intense. And I turned around because my uncle my mom's brother was just wailing. And I had never seen a man cry like that. And I just remember being like, oh, this is a big deal. Yeah. So that's probably my main memory of grief from my childhood. And then another thing I can add too, is that my dad is a Lutheran minister. And so I grew up with him going off and giving funerals all the time. So it was something that I lived with. And, you know, we would go to these funerals too. And my dad would just go off and do these. It was just part of life. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks to so much. And interesting that you talked about the ritual with the hat, because for those of you who don't know, ritual is a big part of Beth's work and how she sees how we navigate grief. So I think that's interesting. But also, you know, it seems to me the underlying theme of your story is that grief and death which 100% of us are going to experience it, were a pretty normative, open for discussion topic and experience in your childhood, which is not something that many of us have. And also even the fact that you were able to attend the funeral, for instance, of your grandparents at 10, I think some of us take that for granted. Like, of course we will do that, but that isn't always the way. There's definitely a lot of deep beliefs about whether or not children can go. Actually, a really quick, funny story aside, I just learned literally in my late 40s, my legal name is actually Susan, but I've been called Lisa since the day I was born. And I finally asked my mom, why did you always call me Lisa? And she told me the story of a friend of hers who she was very close with when she was young, who had leukemia and died while they were in elementary school. And her mom didn't let her go to Lisa's funeral because funerals weren't for kids. Wow, yeah. And my mom said, when I grow up, if I have a daughter, I'm going to name her Lisa. Now, that still does not answer the story why they named me Susan Elizabeth and then called me Lisa, okay? But... I think that to that point, which is, and and that's, of course, my mom's generation, which is much older, but I still see this happening in our generation and even younger, this idea that we have to protect our kids from that as if that then doesn't cause its own harm and confusion and denying children some form of ritual, I think, is particularly cruel, I think. Again, out of the best of intentions, because we have such a grief-avoidant, grief-deficit culture. Whenever I say these things, I hope my listeners understand I'm not criticizing parents or any one person. We're all doing the best we can in the sort of air that we're breathing. And the air that we're breathing, frankly, is grief avoidant culture, which is, of course, the mission of my work at Reimagining Grief and on the show. And I know very much the mission of your work. Well, I appreciate that you had that knowledge coming into your adult life. And then, of course, we're going to talk later, but you became a professional therapist. And so your education and insights on grief are important there. But if you can take us back and tell us a little bit about this pivotal experience that happened in your life with your husband, with your partner, Michael, 
and a little bit in the details about what happened to the degree that it's important for you to share. And just walk us through how you came to be so personally, intimately connected to grief. Yeah. So we'll be going into nine years in August. So it was 2012. My partner, Michael, was out on a mountain bike ride and he crashed and hit a rock. It was dusk. He had a moment before that where he's like, I should probably walk my bike. He didn't pay attention to that and he just kept going. And so he didn't see the rock. So his bike hit it and he flipped over. He hyperextended his neck, heard it cracking, fell, was paralyzed. He didn't know it at the time, what was going on. So I think he was in shock. But yeah, so I was at home cooking a dinner for him, a surprise dinner. And when he didn't show up and I had texted and I had called a few times, finally I realized something's really wrong. And I started making phone calls. And I was so grateful for a post, something I found on the internet, because I was searching, how do you report a loved one missing? Or like, what do you do? What's the protocol? What do you need to do? And somebody had written an article that said, as soon as you know something is wrong, make the call. Because so much can happen in even those first few hours. So don't wait 24 hours before you report that they're gone. So I'm so glad I found that. Yeah. Which is the myth we all learned from basically watching TV growing up or whatever, right? Which was wait 24 hours. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because what happened, so I was cooking dinner and it was about 10 to 8 at night. I suddenly got this huge pang of sadness in my heart out of nowhere. So I had to sit down and I actually said out loud, like, God, I feel so sad. And then I was thinking like, oh, it's probably because we had that argument about this. So I'll apologize when he gets home. And I think that's actually the moment that he fell because what he did was he realized I was the only one that knew where he was. And he screamed, he like put all his energy into screaming my name. Wow, Beth, that just gave me the goosebumps from head to toe. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible when I think back to what was happening and how connected we were because I... I saved him. And sometimes we have moments where (laughs) early on in the beginning, I was like, hey, honey, I saved you. And then I'm like, I saved you for this, which is a life of disability, quadriplegia, which is affects all four limbs. So he basically is paralyzed from the nipples down and he has no fingers or wrists. So he's in a power wheelchair. He has his biceps, which I call the hugging muscle because you can actually pull someone in, but he doesn't have triceps to push or to lift himself up or, you know, do other things. And he has no core. So he's completely dependent. You know, you talked about this earlier that your aunt died suddenly. So here was, you were going about your life and in an instant, unlike maybe a diagnosis that some people go through or something like that, right? And again, I'm not comparing grief We don't need to grief thief each other. It's all hard. But in an instant, you went from being a partner with your partner. Able-bodied partners. An able-bodied partner with a future, some dreams, some expectations about how you would be navigating the world. And in an instant, that was all gone. 
Was it clear in that early when you first finally got to him or he got to you? Well, it's actually something that I'm writing about. So if you want all the details, <laughs> hopefully my book is going to be out. I'm trying to finish it by the end of this summer. It's called Life Upside Down. Because in that instant, my life went upside down. And it was kind of a slow process because I didn't know what was happening. You know, the rescue took about two hours. Then the guy called me said, meet him at the hospital. And it wasn't until probably four in the morning that one of the nurses, the nurse advocate that was assigned to me, I was like, why are they assigning a nurse advocate to me? This feels very too much, right? Yeah, or confusing. Right. They shuffled me into this tiny little room that was so uncomfortable. And they had these two advocates come in, these other like from the police department, I forget what they're called, like a victim advocate. And they were so unhelpful. I wanted to like punch him in the face. He's like, well, this is going to be really hard. I'm like, well, no shit. Like my best friend is here. I think I'll just stay with her and I don't really need you guys. But anyway, it was like four in the morning that they finally came and told me that his neck had been broken. And I just remember being like, wait, you know, and they were using this like medical speak. His neck is persevered at... C4 and C5. And I was like, wait, what does that mean? I made the like scissors to the nurse advocate. Does that mean? She's like, yes, that does mean cut. And so he had like a millimeter left. So it wasn't complete, but it was almost complete. And, you know, it's interesting because I I feel like I got a crash course in quadriplegia and paralysis and spinal cord injury is so, every injury is unique. So even if you say I'm a C4 quad, You know, it also depends on how it affected the spinal cord. So some quads, like I know one quad who's a friend of ours now who has use of all his arms. He has some core and he has one finger, which is the middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's just about perfection right there. Yeah. Right. And so he can use that as a hook and he can flip people off. (laughs) I know. That's brilliant. But Michael doesn't have any of that. So. Okay. So life upside down, which we'll, yeah, we can talk about a little bit, but I think I wanted to sort of tease that out or draw that out. And the truth is, no matter whether you have a long, slow diagnosis, you know, that you're caring for somebody or it's in an instant, there is that sensation early on of being upside down and the fog and the shock and the processing that I think we can all relate to regardless of whether it was kind of a slow motion decline or a an immediate fast experience. And something you just said really resonated for me too, which I was listening to a lecture the other day by a researcher talking who's trying to shift health literacy. Sorry not to nerd out already, but one of the things that she was talking about was the importance of the language that the providers use when they're talking to people in pivotal moments, either at, she was a researcher around the time when people are being communicated to about their cancer diagnosis. But more globally, how can we as friends, as providers, as caretakers use the simplest least amount of words, and of course, do it with empathy, but also to just slow down and be, and it doesn't sound like that was your experience. And although you had somebody there who could translate, it sounds like you had a friend there who could translate later on. Yeah. And the nurse advocate helped me too. Okay. Yeah. When we come back, Beth explores the early days of navigating the world since Michael's accident, her experience of being a helper that is now seeking help, 
and she begins to explore how rituals have become integral both to her own personal grief, but also in her role of supporting others. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Hey there, as we wrap up 2021, I'm excited to share I'll be spending the first month of the new year finishing my first book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. It's emerging to be a beautiful, easy to digest vessel of all the wisdom I've gained over the years as a social worker, narrative therapist, widow, grief guide, and even as host of this show. This book isn't geared towards a specific type of loss or a phase in your grief. Instead, I'm writing this book for all the grievers who haven't felt seen and held in their grief. You can stay tuned for sneak previews of the book, news about current and future guests of this show, services I'm offering, the latest on the books that I'm reading and loving too, and so much more by signing up for the Reimagining Grief Not-So-Regular Newsletter. Why that title? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Visit www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. So your life flipped upside down as Michael literally flipped upside down at the time that you were already a practicing therapist, which you know I can relate to, same thing happened in my life. Can you tell me a little bit about any tensions you felt early on about assuming you needed some level of expertise or you should have some level of expertise in how to handle this since you're a professional and yet allowing yourself to be in the muck of it and be confused like everybody else and seek help? And how was that experience for you early on? And that was there tension there between those two aspects of yourself? You know, it's interesting because I don't think in the beginning I wasn't seeking any professional help, even though I knew I knew eventually I would have to find a therapist. So I found one. I think I started seeing her in July of 2014. And it took me a while to find her because I wanted somebody who did EMDR. So I knew I had to process it with that for my vicarious trauma because I see that accident over and over in my head. Yeah, we're going to talk in more detail later about EMDR and the importance of that in processing traumatic grief. Yeah. So you knew you had to find somebody very with specific. Yeah. And I wanted somebody who also understood medical trauma. And so she was a chaplain, had been a chaplain and psychotherapist in a hospital. So it was perfect. And I remember when I, the first appointment I had with her, she had a little chalkboard on a little sign, like, like an easel. Yeah, yeah. Like an easel. And it said, love what is. And that has been my mantra even before the accident. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, she hadn't even really spoken to her. And I was like, okay, I think this is my therapist. Because that's what I was trying to grok was how do I love quadriplegia? And another big thing that I did, Lisa, was, so I did ritual and I did EMDR. And I also walked part of the Camino in France and Spain. And I walked one day, all day up a mountain with that. How do I love quadriplegia? Beth, I have so many thoughts, reflections, questions. I'm not even sure where to go. I (laughs) do appreciate the fact that I'm always trying to make visible that 100% of us need help sometimes. We might not all need EMDR. We might not all even need an ongoing therapist, although I would say like pretty universally, all of us could benefit from a counselor, a grief guide, a therapist, something. But I think it's important what you just made visible was 
We all need it. We have to offer ourselves the grace and permission to seek it. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. So the part, you know, I talked about this in the last season, at the end of season two, I did an episode called Ask Me Anything. And one of the questions was, how do I find a quote-unquote good grief counselor? And like most of my answers in grief, which not everybody loves, is you have to figure out what's right for you. And part of that is knowing, which is what you did, is what is it that I'm looking for? Do I need some technical skill? Do I like having someone who just gives me practical advice? Am I a practical advice seeker? Do I just need a safe space where I can scream and wail and swear and be seen and held? Or do I need some combination? Whatever it is, but you have to do that internal inventory taking really first. And sometimes that means you're going to try out multiple people, for sure. I definitely struggled in the early days. I was the clinical director of a big family services. I was offering therapy at the time. And I definitely struggled a little bit. I Thankfully, we had been seeing somebody because of the nature of Eric's brain tumor, not knowing it, and he had turned into a totally different human. But it takes a while to find the right fit, especially when you're a therapist, because it's hard to turn. I don't know about you, but it's really hard to turn my therapist. I'm like, I see what you're doing there where you asked me that question. And now I'm going to, you know, and I really had to kind of, every time I would walk into session, I'd have to like stand in the hallway first and say like, you are not the therapist right now. Right. You know, like I just really had to give myself permission to show up in just my full humanity and not my, yeah, which is, I mean, still 10 years later, there are some sessions where I show up and I'm like, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. <laughs> and actually, thankfully, my therapist calls me on it sometimes. She's like, yeah. hmm, sounds like you're trying to be your own therapist right now. <laughs> like, damn it. She called me out. Yeah. One of the qualities I love in a therapist. So absolutely. that's what I knew. The minute I met this one, I was like, mm, I like her. She calls me on my shit. Yep. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you were able to seek some support and you mentioned something about of course, you walked the trail, which I, for those of you who don't know, it's just a incredibly, I haven't done it yet, but it's an incredibly important and spiritual journey for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, grief being a major part of it. But tell us a little bit, you started to mention that ritual has been important, and I know you ended up studying and training. Can you tell us just sort of personally what you learned in an overview? I know there's so much depth to it, but also why you think ritual for you and for people who are grieving can be a really important tool. Why ritual? Yeah. Well, and the ritual that I'm referring to and that helped me so much was from the Dagara tribe in West Africa and a woman named Sabamfu Some, who actually I grieve for now because she died in January of 2017. So I'm trying to remember, like, how did I find her? I think it was a friend in my community who said that she had done this grief ritual with Sabamfu and that two women were leading it in my community. Did you already have a sense before then that you were craving a ritual? Like, had ritual been a part of your life previous to this? It hadn't. Okay. I mean, other than like growing up with church ritual or community gatherings. Gotcha. I'm making it visible because one of the things I was saying, I've been thinking and writing about recently is like, what tools do we need? And sometimes we just need to inventory take and think about what are the tools that served me in past hardships. And sometimes we're going to have to pick up new tools. So it's curious to know that ritual was sort of a new tool you picked up in your grief journey. 
Yeah. And it's just something that as soon as I heard what it was about, I knew I had to do it. I think I had heard of her work before and I just, I needed a place to be safe. And I had so much anger and rage. I didn't know where to put it. So I did my first ritual with these two women who had studied with Sabamfu. It was so it was the total style that she had done. And that was October of 2013. So almost a year after. And I had this moment. And the, the, what's so beautiful about this ritual is that you create these altars and you do it as a group. You do it as a village. So you don't just come and it's all set up and you go. So we come, we talk about what is grief, we introduce our stories, why we're there, and then we start to build the grief altar. There's an ancestor altar, and then there's, I think Sabamfu referred it as the forgiveness altar. And I end up calling it the water shrine because there's water and the colors of water on that shrine. And so when you're called to grieve, and she said, you go to the grief altar when you feel the grief stirring and you can go when you feel nothing. If you're stuck, if you feel numb, if you feel nothing, if you don't know what to do, bring that to the grief altar. And I found it was the best place for me where I could just be at the altar. I'm going to cry because it just, and pound my fists on the floor and scream and just let it all out. And it was okay to do that. It was encouraged to do that. Because I think that's one thing in this culture, like, well, in this culture, we privatize our grief. I learned that from Francis Weller. We're experts at doing it all by ourselves. You can't do grief alone because you can't. He talks about grief needs two things, containment and release. If you're trying to do both, you can't set it down. And so another beautiful thing about this ritual is that when you're called to the grief ritual, so you go forward to the grief altar, immediately somebody else from the village comes behind and is right behind you. So you literally aren't at the altar by yourself. Someone is bearing witness to your grief. Somebody has your back. Yeah. Oh, well, you know how I feel about that. The motto of this show is, don't worry, I got your back. So yeah, absolutely. This idea of ritual has always been so profoundly fascinating to me, not having grown up with religion or other practices. I want to make visible to all of us that while I think seeking out these more formal ritualized practices and offerings can be profoundly change-making in your own grief experience, we can all create little rituals on our own too. And I think to your point, Finding some that allow you to be sort of held in community is particularly important because this idea that we become sort of isolated and detached in our grief, we have to sort of find our way back to belonging in some way. And I think that those rituals that involve that witness and containment so that we can release and let go is just I felt that as you were describing it, not just at the heart level, but I felt it in my embodied self. Like I could really feel that idea of being able to set down. And something you talked about, which I think is so very common in grief, and again, so very shunned, not just in our, by the way, grief illiterate culture, but our broader culture, of course, they are one in the same in some ways, is this notion of feeling so much rage and so much anger 
That was another question folks asked me last season. And then for so many of us, because we haven't witnessed what healthy rage and healthy anger expression looks like or feels like, we've either seen stifling or many of us have seen the sort of dangerous explosive ways rage and anger have been expressed, that you felt that and until you had that ritual, didn't know where to go. Was there guilt associated with feeling anger, shame? Tell us a little bit about that, because I think so many people are like feeling maybe a permission to just even hearing this. Right. Yeah. Well, so I'm laughing because I was expressing my anger before this, but it wasn't in a positive way or a healthy way. So I was angry at the apartment manager that where we were living and I would let out my anger. It was somebody at the grocery store. It wasn't one of my friends. So I was letting it out, I would say sideways. Yeah. Passive aggressive. And yeah, it was leaking out. And so that's why it was so beautiful at the ritual to just have a place to scream and grunt and moan and, and just let it out. I mean, grief is messy. It's ugly. You know, so I was crying and raging and I had snot and and it was totally okay to do that. Absolutely. And by the way, we don't just, our emotions are constantly flowing, so they're going to come and go, but bottling them up just means, as you said, I love that metaphor of sort of leaking out, is that we're all leaking out in passive aggressive ways, but also we're kind of absorbing that in a toxic way. It's leaking internally. So the self-judgment and the lack of self-compassion, it can be really stifling. And I think the degree to which we can, as we do with all of our emotions, sort of give ourselves some space between us and the emotion and sort of see it as information that we must witness. I almost think we have to hold space and bear witness to our own emotions. Exactly. Yeah. I remember one instance where I was, there was so much going on at the time and I was angry for so many things, but I think the main anger, it always was rooted in my partner's accident. And I remember one time raging in the car and screaming as loud as I could. And I also was like hitting the side you know, the, the passenger the seat. No, not the door, the uh-huh, passenger yeah. seat, because I just needed, I learned from one of my therapy mentors a long time ago, anger needs, you have to move the five endpoints of the body to get anger out or let it move through. So that includes your throat, your arms and your hands and your legs. And so because I knew that, and maybe because I was a therapist, I knew I had to move this. So I think actually that's one thing that helped me was that I didn't bottle that anger. You know, yes, it came out sideways in some unhealthy ways at times, but I also was walking, I was screaming, I was hitting things that were cushy, not to hurt myself, you know, and and expressing it to people. And then so when I finally had it, a place to do that at grief ritual, it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And I also had an experience where I had like this moment where I realized I've done this before. I don't know where that came from, but I also had this moment of like, I'm going to be leading people and helping people in this ritual someday, which actually started happening a few months after. I found some connections with some of my friends who was blessed by one of the people of the Daggera Village to lead this ritual. And so I became her wing woman and led the rituals with her. 
We are definitely going to talk about what you've learned going through the experience of ritual and then how that's showing up in your work and how ritual and your passion for leading ritual is overlapping with your training as an art therapist, with your training as an EMDR practitioner, and kind of the way in which you're infusing that, both for the people that you serve, but always coming back to, Beth, to your own, how you use it in your own work. I like to ask peer professionals who are on the show, because I think sometimes we can get very intellectual and sort of disconnect ourselves as if we're speaking to others. But I want to make visible to all the folks who listen to the show, we are doing the work too for ourselves. We are always in it for ourselves too. But before we move to that, I want to reflect back something so beautifully important you said that your mentor shared with you about sort of moving our anger through our sort of five points, through our voice, through our fingers, through our feet. Because I think we, again, for so many of us, whether we're sort of trained professionals or not, we try to process all of our emotions, especially the difficult emotions for some of us, that's anger, some for us, that's sadness, sort of from the neck up at an intellectual level, as if I can sort of think my way through these feelings. I know I've, I'll throw myself under the bus there. I have used that. That is my go-to default when I don't really want to sit with the hard emotions that are coming my way. And there is a true physiological need, right? This stress response, because we are in this sort of fight or flight, and those emotions become so charged, not unlike a saber-toothed tiger chasing us down. And what we did was run and move and scream, and then we return to the cave, the community, to be held and seen. So I just love this reminder you shared with us, how even if you aren't fortunate enough to be part of a ritual ceremony like the ones Beth leads, but how can you in your daily practice, in your sort of everyday life, when the strong emotions of grief feel like they're going to take over. I do this myself, and I say it to people all the time. I sometimes put on really loud music and literally dance like a crazy person around my house. Or I put on music and I sort of dance and shake. Or I'll even just picture my old rescue dog, Brutus, whenever he'd have a stressful encounter with other dogs, because he was not a dog's dog, he would shake it off. Just shake it off. Yeah, and we can't shake it off as humans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can, we can shake, we can do these things, but there's something that gets stuck in our brains. That's why it's really good to do EMDR. That's what EMDR is doing is desensitizing and reprocessing because we can't shake it off like animals do. Yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about is as strong emotions come forward, we can help release. I mean, crying certainly helps us process talking, writing, being in therapy, shaking it off to sort of discharge in that moment, sort of that discharging. But when you have a particular grief experience, especially one where you've witnessed a crime or a trauma or a tragedy or something very intense where things get stuck and you end up in a trauma response, not everybody responds to the event the same, of course, trauma is personal. Then there's that stuckness that happens because we haven't moved it from, we're reliving it instead of storing it. Can you talk a little bit about that for folks who don't know about EMDR and the you know Reader's Digest version of why it can be really helpful for so many of us in our grief? Yeah. So EMDR, if you don't know what that stands for, it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And so what it uses is bilateral stimulation that you're doing in your body. So that could be you have headphones and you hear a beep in each ear that goes back and forth, or you're the original stimulation that they use was watching the practitioner's finger go back and forth. So you're moving your eyeballs back and forth in the sockets. 
You're not moving your neck. And then now you can hold buzzers if you're in person with somebody, or you can tap on your legs, or you can move your feet up and down, just as long as it's right side, left side. And what that is doing is it's mimicking REM sleep. So when we get into a REM sleep, our eyes go back and forth. And what it's doing is they are reprocessing our day or the events that just happened. And so when we're doing that specifically with a trauma, you know, sometimes EMDR can be really intense. And I always would laugh at myself because I'd show up in my therapist's office. I'd be like, I really don't want to do this today. I feel the resistance. I don't want to drop in there, but I would do it. There were some days where I didn't, you know, so I have that compassion I feel for my clients now when they show up and they're like, I don't want to do this today. And I totally get it. But because what you're doing is you're reliving a certain part of the trauma and you start there and then the buzzers or the beeps or whatever the stimulation you're using and you... You want it to just keep going like as if you're watching a movie. So there's some separation. So you have one foot in this world and one foot in the trauma. But the more I found that the more that I did that, the less upset I would get. So it helped me to to reprocess it. And so I wasn't so sensitive to it. It wasn't, it was like it would hijack me. And I was able to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that happened. So I wouldn't hijack myself. Yeah. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Beth Erlander. When we come back, I asked Beth to explore how she's integrating all that she's learned, both personally, but also the various professional tools she's gained over the years, like EMDR, rituals, and even art therapy. I asked her to share how she's using that as she shows up with individual grievers, but also in her work supporting other clinicians. Can you tell me a little bit about, for yourself and for others, how you've learned, shifted, changed all these different sort of modalities or approaches that you've learned over life? So we talked about EMDR, we talked about ritual. I know you're a trained art therapist too. How have those different practices evolved and melted together, or shed away? What's intriguing to you at this stage in your work about sort of the joining together of those? I think the thing that joins them all together is creativity and curiosity. Oh, two of my favorite words in the entire world. I know. So sometimes when, I, when I'm when i seeing new clients or if, the, if somebody's trying to figure out if they want to work with me, I mean, my, I always talk about how we want to keep your grief moving. I think as an artist, an art therapist, and then somebody who's been through grief myself, you know, I'm always trying to figure out some out-of-the-box ways to keep it moving. Um, So sometimes we have to get creative. Yeah. And to be curious about our own grief. Yeah, absolutely. So what I needed the most was, and what helped me the most was ritual, walking the Camino, So being with my grief for 10 days as I walked and was in nature. So nature is a big part of what I do. And then doing the trauma protocol of EMDR. I think those are the three main things. I mean, there's other things. Like I express my anger and I found ways to do that in ritual. Yeah, I think that's my biggest thing is let's get creative and curious about what your grief needs because it's also different for each person. And it changes over time and it changes. I'm always saying, I've been writing lately about 
you don't need to pack your check-in bag. You just need a carry-on luggage because you just need some of the things that you need now, and you're going to discover what you need along the journey. And what you need will change over time. And it sounds like you've even experienced that in your own grief, sort of picking up different tools, picking up different things along the way and setting some others down. But we can only do that, I think, which is why I love the word curiosity. Well, so many reasons I love that word. It probably is the most used word in sessions with my clients. I'm curious about. They see me coming from a mile away. They're like, oh, there goes Lisa with her curiosity. (laughs) But I think that curiosity, which connects to mindfulness, is if we get hooked or hung up in this way of this should, of this how I should be feeling or what I should be doing or what's helping or what should help. And we lose that sense of curiosity. That's to your point. I think when our grief can feel stuck, when there isn't movement, because we're still trying to apply these old ways of being, right? And so you have to be curious to think, is this working? Is it not? Is it helpful? Is it not? Yeah. That reminds me that I also talk to people about being a joy detective. I love that. I love that. Tell more. Well, so what I learned from my grief is that, so I'm an artist, but I couldn't make any art. That wasn't happening in the beginning. So what gave me joy before the accident didn't give me joy afterwards. So I had to just keep trying and seeking other ways to find joy. And it also reminds me how I would also go to an ecstatic dance community in Denver for many, many years. And so I would show up to dance because that was where my community was and they knew me and my story. But it took me three years before I felt joy of dancing again. But I would make myself go and just huddle in the corner under a table and cry or shake or somebody would work on me and I would do weird things at the dance. You could do anything at ecstatic dance. But I'm glad that I kept going and trying to to see like, oh, is, am I going to feel this joy now? And sometimes I'd go in the middle of the dance floor and just pretend and I'd move like people were moving, but I wouldn't feel it on the inside. But I didn't stop going. So I kept going. I kept persevering. Like, I know it's going to come back someday, but not this week. <laughs> not this week. And finding some grace with yourself that it doesn't, you know. And I think to your point, sort of exploring, trying, going through the motions for a while can be really important to give our mind-body a chance to catch up to this new, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of my book title. It's like I was trying to come right back up. I was trying to come right side up again, and it took a long time to come right side up. And how can we give ourselves grace? If you're listening to this, if you're in the first month, the first year, heck, if you're in the first five years, how can we get better at giving ourselves grace? and permission and space to fumble in the messy, beautiful work of grief. And I think that's that's just so profoundly important. I see that in your work. And of course, there's a lot of great peers in our community who are having these same conversations. And I just never want to miss a chance to remind, in case we're catching a griever somewhere in their journey where they're feeling like they should be at some other place or they're not doing the right thing, how can we just, oh, Offer ourselves grace. So I woke up one night, I can't remember when, I think it was just a few years ago. And I was like, I wrote down these words because they were just so profound. (laughs) So now I use them all the time with my clients and with myself. And it's just notice, don't judge. Just notice, oh, I feel numb inside. Oh, I feel really incredibly sad. Oh, I don't feel like going to work today. Oh, I hate this. 
I hate my life. Okay, let's just notice that and don't judge it. It's just showing up. Yeah, exactly. Again, coming back to the cultural level, we have a fix it, do it, top 10 list, get it to some other place culture that seeps in. And so as a result, we often don't offer ourselves the kind of grace and patient and that kind of mindful curiosity because we bring a judgmental lens to whatever it is that we're experiencing. And the sort of irony of that is then we don't actually create enough space to figure out what we do need. When we bring that kind of fixy judgmental approach to noticing anger or sadness or numbness or whatever, we don't get to listen long enough to what I think is really most of us have a real internal knowing some way of what we need, but we kind of shut that off. Or we assume that the knowing has to present itself in an Oprah Winfrey aha moment, which sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And it it makes me think, Lisa, about my, what I'm calling my tagline of my business right now is grief friend. Because I, I see grief as a character that shows up on my doorstep and it starts living on my porch. It's tattered, it's messy, it's dirty, it's hungry, and it just wants attention. I had to let it in and befriend it and just let it walk with me. And I'm not getting over this or through this. And I live with grief every day and I see it. Grief is our companion. I think of grief as our travel companion. And sometimes they're by your side and glued onto you and in your way. And sometimes they're kind of remote walking ahead or behind. But yeah, grief is our companion. Even that shift is important to then help you stop feeling like, oh, I got to get through or over or done. Or get rid of this, you know, and and I want to go back to normal and I want to be happy again. And yeah, it's... It's a really challenging thing. But once you can let that in and befriend it, I talk about bring grief in and give it some tea and feed it a cookie, you know, and get to know it because it's with you for the rest of your life, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think the folks who follow my work at Reimagining Grief and listen to the show know I definitely don't believe in this recovery done, it's over model. And I actually see that as a good thing because what grief has taught me by working with and traveling with grief all these years is a way, by the way, to to experience joy and to be a more voracious joy seeker and joy observer and joy experiencer and also just allows me to reflect back some grace for the full humanity of what it is that I lost. So I do appreciate that reminder to all of us about grief being a friend that comes along. And I want to take a moment to, I always think about the folks who are early in their grief, first week, first month. And you might be saying, what the actual fuck, Lisa and Beth? Do not tell me grief is forever. I just want to get through it because the depth of pain is so intense. And so I just kind of want to pause and speak directly to you that I see you. I hear you. I'm holding you in my heart. I know how that feels. And this can just be nonsense to you that you file away for later. You can just, Lisa said this thing, and I think it's kind of BS right now, but I'm going to just file it away for later. And I think it's an important truth to sort of hold on to from your travel companions who are further down the road. Yeah, it reminds me of a friend who said, well, for as low as you go, you're going to go just as high. And I remember in my head saying, yeah, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 
Yeah. We're not doing the they're in a better place crap right now because you all know how I feel about that. So don't worry. I'm not saying that. And this work of grief, which I really call it, you know, this work of grief of inviting it in, of traveling with it, of learning from it, is a journey and it offers gifts. These losses offer gains and we don't gain them just by the virtue of our loss, however, is that we have to show up and attend to. And if you don't like the sort of metaphor of work, but attend to or accompany, befriend, grief, that's where the gains can come. That's where the savoring of joy and delight and amazement, that's where we can reconnect more deeply to what it is we value, how we want to show up for others and ourselves in the world, all of the gains that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And also just to circle back to the ritual, at the end of these grief rituals, the feeling in the room is so different. And so many of us were full of joy. And then this like bewilderment that like, how can I feel so much joy when I'm still grieving? And Subamfu, one of her favorite sayings that I just love was, the reason why we do grief rituals is to open the pipes of grief and let it flow so that more life can flow within us and we can access more joy and more life. Oh, that just... I felt kind of a river of joy out of my heart when you said that I love that metaphor. And we can hold many things to be true, including deep grief and deep joy, if we open ourselves with curiosity and we open ourselves up to that. So I love that. Beth, what a beautiful way, I think, to end our conversation for today. I know this will probably be the first of many over our lifetime, but I just want to say thank you for sharing your wisdom, for your heart, your story, your insights with us. And I'll be sure to share all the details in the show notes for today's episodes where people can find you. But do you want to share with our listeners how they can reach you? Yeah. So my website is beth at bethurlander.com. Or you can find me on Instagram. I post a lot about grief and joy and my own personal life too. And that's Beth Erlander Grief Friend. Okay. I'll drop all those links in the show notes for today's episode. Yeah, you should definitely follow Beth on Instagram. And she's often giving us glimpses into joy seeking and ritual and all kinds of beautiful things. I learn from you all the time. So I appreciate being in this space with you. And I appreciate this conversation. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate all that you do. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, today with my guest, Beth Erlander. You can learn more about Beth by visiting www.betherlander.com and follow her on Instagram at Beth Erlander Grief Friend. Don't worry, I'll drop the links in the show notes for today's episode. And if you love the show, I'd love for you to visit Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might just need it the most. Thanks to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and to that team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.